Shabbat Shalom. So we are in the letters of John, working through his letters to the church. And I've entitled this Planted and Thriving. The Apostle John paints a beautiful picture of community and its benefits. Throughout his letters, he encourages people to really embrace who Jesus is, the light of God, the word of God manifested in flesh. In him, we have life. In him, community, purpose, and meaning. So as we join in local communal groups, we enjoy all these things. We enjoy the protection of God over our lives against the schemes of the enemy and the seductions of this evil world we live in. The enemy's crafty. He's a schemer. He's able to seduce people. People fall into things they, they never intended to get involved in. And without a community, without God's oversight and protection, it's easy to get off track and into dangerous places. This is part of the beauty and the benefits of being plugged in to a local community. This is what John is emphasizing to his community. He's encouraging them to live and to thrive in God's purposes, in God's ways, and that being in and through community. So let's continue to explore the wisdom that we have and the purpose that we have as John gives us these ideas throughout his letters. In 1 John chapter 2, we'll pick up chapter 2 this week, verses 1 and 2. He makes the case that Yeshua has atoned for our sins. He says, my children, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an intercessor with the Father, the righteous Messiah, Yeshua. He is the atonement for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the whole world. Jesus is an intercessor. He's an advocate. What is that? What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a courtroom setting. It's dealing with justice and righteousness and how God procures that in the universe. Jesus, this advocate of ours, is like a friend of the court. He has the ear of the king. Think about that. He's the one that intervenes and intercedes on our behalf. And he happens not only to be a friend of the court, he's the son of the king who is judging all of us in a righteous way and through justice, he judges us. And his son is our advocate. Because we have faith in Jesus, Jesus says, I'll intercede on your behalf. I've got the ear of my father. Everything's going to be okay. This is the beautiful picture of what we call the atonement of Messiah and his role as an intercessor on our behalf. He is the propitiation or atonement of our sins. The translation I'm using uses atonement. Most of them, they use the word propitiation. I like the word atonement. I think it's rooted in the concept that we find in the Torah that I think is far closer to the idea of what's taken place in the cross event rather than the word propitiation. Propitiation is an ancient word that basically means to satisfy an angry and wrathful God, how to appease his anger. And the reason I don't like that is because I don't think God's angry with the world, right? 
John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. His son didn't come to condemn. His son came to save. God says, I'm in love with the world. That's why I'm sending my son. It's, it's not that, you know, for God's so angry with the world that he killed his only begotten son and his anger and wrath to appease himself. No, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to be an atonement, a covering of our sin, a cleansing of our sin, so that we could have relationship with the Father. That idea is rooted in the word atonement. This whole idea of atonement encapsulates the idea of justice being met, of making things right again. Jesus' death on the cross was an atonement for our sins. He is our atonement. John's point is, Jesus is our atonement. He is what makes things right on our behalf with our Father so that we can have relationship with him. Now, Jesus is not only the Lamb of God sacrificed for our atonement, He's actually the place of atonement. I know we don't often think of atonement as a place, but the Torah does. It's called the mercy seat. It's the mercy seat where God comes to meet with his people. One location in his temple, in the Holy of Holies, over the mercy seat. He tells Moses, make the atonement Take the blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the cover of the mercy seats, and there I will come and meet with you, the one that represents all of Israel, all of humanity. Moses is that type and shadow of Jesus. God's saying, I'm going to meet with Moses. Moses, you're going to represent all the people, but you can't come into my presence until sin is atoned for. Justice must be met. Evil must be dealt with. Sin must be cleansed. And so when you sprinkle the blood of the atonement onto the mercy seat, I will come above the mercy seat and I will meet with you. So where does God meet with the people or their representative? The place, the location is the mercy seat. That's where God comes. That's where heaven intersects with earth, if you will. Now, this is intriguing when you think about it. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It says, but now God's righteousness, apart from the Torah, has been revealed, to which the Torah and the prophets bear witness, namely the righteousness of God through putting trust in Messiah Yeshua to all who keep on trusting, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are set right as a gift of his grace through the redemption that is in Messiah Yeshua. Now listen to verse 25. God set forth Yeshua as an atonement through faith in his blood to show his righteousness in passing over sins already committed. Through God's forbearance, He demonstrates his righteousness at present time that he himself is just and also the justifier of the one who puts his trust in Yeshua. This word atonement that Paul uses in verse 25 
God set forth Yeshua as an atonement. This word that, that Paul uses is related to the one that John uses when he says Yeshua is our atonement. They come from the same family group of words. This Greek word that Paul uses is referring to the place of atonement. John is, is talking about the person who atones. Jesus is the atonement. Paul says he's also the place of atonement. And it doesn't make any sense unless you're thinking mercy seat, which is the Hebraic backdrop for both John and Paul. So consider this for a minute. It says that God pub publicly displayed Jesus as a propitiation for sins. If we think through a Jewish mindset, what that means is this. Jesus is that public visible mercy seat sprinkled with his own blood as he makes an atonement on behalf of the people. And he's not only the atonement, he's the place, he's the mercy seat, which tells us God only meets with mankind in and through that place, that place being the broken body of his son, Jesus Christ. God only meets with humanity through his son. God is holy. We are a broken, unholy race, if you, if you think about that. There's no interaction. We can't even approach God except on his terms. And he says you have to come through a blood atonement. And that blood atonement was offered up by my son. And his body is the mercy seat. His body is the dwelling place in which I come and meet all of humanity. In and only through Jesus, the Messiah. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All of redemption happens in and through the mercy seat, in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the point that both John and Paul is making. Back in John, chapter 2, verse 3, he shifts gears. He answers this question that we all wrestle with from time to time. How do we really know that we really know God, right? You ever think about that? Are there times in your life where you say, do I really know God, you know? Or is this just a faith deal? Is there anything that vindicates my idea that I know God? Verse 3, John says, now we know that we have come to know him. How do we know that we've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. Commandments, think about that. The two big ones are love God, love your neighbor. That's pretty simple. Very general too doesn't tell us much, right? What does it mean to love God and love your neighbor? Well, the Ten Commandments are the foundations of those two laws. They give us a context of what it means to love God, what it means to love our neighbor. The first four of the Ten Commandments are foundational to what it means to love God. When you say, I love God, it should be reflected in you walking in and out these commandments. We don't get a defined love. You can say you love God, but the evidence of loving God is the first four. Think about this for a minute. God says, number one, love me and me alone. I'm the true and living God. I'm the most high God. There's a lot of gods out there, but you're to love me and me alone. Put no other God 
before me. So fidelity to God and God alone. Number two, no idolatry. No pagan mixtures. You can't take pagan forms of worship and pagan days and repackage those and offer those up to me. It's idolatry. Commandment number two, no idolatry. Number three, you cannot bear my name in vain. If you claim my name and claim that you love me, you have to live a commensurate lifestyle related to who I am. God's not after lip service. It's not just a confession of faith. It's a way of life. And that vindicates in our hearts that, yes, we do know God. Number four, remember to observe the Sabbath as the weekly day of liberation, rest, and corporate worship. It's a memorial to God as creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. We keep this day because it declares who he is and who we are. And we have a relationship with the creator, redeemer, and the one that sanctifies us. It's the day that Jesus went to church on. I mean, I, you know, I just think that says it all. You know, I was asked one time, why do you go to church on, on Saturday? You know, my friend thought that was odd. I said, that's the day that Jesus went to church on. You know, everyone scratches their head because they, they misunderstand what a synagogue was. A synagogue was where believers met, Right? So, so kind of the Christian vernacular of, of how to communicate the concept of synagogue is church. And once you understand that, you realize, oh yeah, that's the day that Jesus kept. That's the day that he went to church on every week, all of his life. So of course we're going to keep that day. The last six, well, they're foundational to what it means to love your neighbor. It's kicked off with the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. What does that tell us? It tells us that family is sacred. The family unit is holy. It's the design of God. We don't get to redefine it. Once you begin to redefine that, the whole thing begins to crumble. Yeah, this whole idea that we're supposed to honor mother and father is to say that we're to honor that marriage which created us, the unit that we call the family, the family sacred. We don't, get, don't let anyone pervert that. Take a stand for the family. Stand up for the family. Safeguard the family. Show honor to your mother and your father. You have no idea what you've put them through. They are worthy of honor. Not just because of who they are, but because of what they represent. The next one, you shall not murder. That tells us that human life is sacred. I'm so grateful for the recent ruling of the Supreme Court. It begins to stir that up once again. Pushes it back to the states. We get to address that all over again. We get to continue to take the stand that says, no, we are not brute beasts. The result of some, you know, irrational, atheistic evolution. No, 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 no. We're made in the image of God. We are God imagers. We are sacred. We are not animals. We're sacred, made in the image of our father, both male and female. Life is sacred. From conception to natural death, we're to safeguard that and to hold it sacred. You shall not commit adultery. Again, 
marriage is sacred. Safeguard it, nurture it. The grass is always greener where you water it. Water your marriage. Build up your spouse. Invest in your marriage. It's holy. It's sacred. You shall not steal. Private property is sacred. Doesn't matter what the Marxists say. It's sacred. It's part of the American dream that everyone could have some of their own dirt. And all of that now is basically lost because the nation, so wayward, has so many problems. The judgment of God is all over it. And it's very, very sad that, that we've lost our moorings and our perspectives when it comes to these basic issues that are tied into the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you shall not steal. That implies that you can own things, right? If I don't own it, you can't steal it. The only way you can steal carries the idea that people can possess things, and they do. That is a God-given right, and private property is sacred. No trespassing. You see those signs all the time. I grew up in a family. We'd go out hunting, small game, and, uh, you know, we, we swore up and down the pheasants could read, you know. It'd say no trespassing, and this, that's the field all the pheasants are in. They stand at the edge looking at you, mocking you, you know. Yeah, no trespassing. What does that mean? That means someone owns that land. It's not your land. You cannot trespass on it. Yeah, this is rooted in the Ten, Ten Commandments. It's embedded, really, in our Declaration of Independence. Do you know there's nothing more sacred in terms of property than your body? Your body is the most sacred private property in existence. Our bodies have been given to us by God. They're ours. We're to govern them by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I want to tell our government, no trespassing. I want to tell big government, you're supposed to legislate the laws of nature and nature's God. And he said, no trespassing. It's my body. You don't get a mandate and put things in it that I don't want in it. It's not your property. It's not, you didn't like your property invaded on January 6th. <laughs> don't, you invade, don't you invade mine, right? See, I'm a believer. I know the Ten Commandments. Don't tread on me. This is our inalienable rights as listed both in the Ten Commandments and then, and then relisted, in, in, in a sense, in our Declaration of Independence. No perjury against your neighbor. When you testify, you tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Oh, how much would we pay for our politicians to embrace that one? Right? To actually tell the truth under oath. Unbelievable. But it starts with us, right? It starts with us and then us voting for our representatives who are also men and women of integrity who will tell the truth and speak the truth regardless of the outcomes. And then finally, no coveting, no coveting. Again, implies private property. You cannot covet what belongs to your neighbor. All that stuff is his or hers. Leave it alone. In fact, not only do not covet it, you make sure that you help protect it as well. 
in our neighbors in neighborhood we try to connect with our neighbors to build alliances to say hey let's watch over each other's stuff over each other's families over each other's houses let's band together and protect what each of us have rather than coveting and stealing from one another these are important basic commands that sorry to say have to be revisited now more than ever in our nation i love the ten commandments i love these words they're everything you know as you step into and walk in the commandments of god it is the very evidence that you know him you know him how how else would you even understand these things let alone begin to walk in them these are the evidence of the fact that we know God. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I could say a lot about that, but I don't need to because I think the simplicity of this is enough. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It doesn't matter what we say with our lips. It's how we live our lives. And if your life isn't lined up with the truth, it's because there's no light in you. When I say you, not you, the world around us. You guys know the Lord. Our nation's lost, though, and needs the Lord. 1 John 2, 5-6, through six, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is truly made perfect. We know that we are in him by this. Whoever claims to abide in him must walk just as he walked. Jesus is our Lord. This is why we follow him. This is why we look to him and his life as a model for how we live our lives. I'm so excited about this. This drives me day in and day out. Think about that. Because we follow Jesus, we keep and observe the commandments of God as a way of life, which pits us against the world that we're living in. It solicits persecution, misunderstanding and persecution. But Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your cross and follow me. We follow the Lord. This is why we go to church on the same day that he went to church his whole life. This is why we keep our Father's holy days just as Jesus did. This is why we keep the same dietary laws just as Jesus did. Our bodies are important. We need to safeguard them, respect them. Eat in a way that glorifies God. We love our neighbors. We reach out to our neighbors. We learn to be good neighbors. That's what Jesus instructed us to do. You know, I, I have this neighbor I just met. Haven't, we haven't really connected for the last couple of years that I've, I've been there. And Don and I, we were at a little restaurant. And uh, he came up to us and he says, uh, Hi, my name's such and such. So I introduced myself. And he goes, I'm your neighbor. Ah, I said, really? He says, yeah, the one on the corner, you know, and I said, oh, okay, so this is great. Finally met you, you know. So we're both apologizing to each other. So I was just praying for him, you know, and, and uh, I was coming home the other day, and 
his sprinkler system, it blew ahead, and it was just shooting straight up. So I thought, I get to be neighborly. You know, this is what it means to be neighborly. It's such an adventure. God's commandments are an adventure. So I went over there and knocked on his door and said, hey, your sprinkler head blew. And he said, oh, thanks. And I said, you got any parts? He says, no. I said, I think I got some. And so we ended up spending about 45 minutes together. And uh, it was a great, great encounter with my neighbor that God set up through the broken sprinkler. It was amazing. And we're going to follow up and, uh, uh, you know, get together more and really kind of uh, get to know each other. But we had a good, long conversation about the Lord and different things. His brother's a campus pastor of this huge mega church in, in, I think, Alabama, but it's pretty big. But yeah, we had a lot of fun just dialoguing on, on Jesus and, um, and the Jewish background of Jesus and uh, the miniseries, uh, The Chosen, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and just this whole fascination about the Jewishness of Jesus. I thought, wow, wow, I wish his sprinkler head would have blown years ago, but it's okay. We'll just run with with it, you know, right now. So just, just that admonition, encouragement, be a good neighbor, right? That's what it means to love God and to love your neighbor is to just uh, treat them and reach out to them the way that you would want to be treated and reached out to. And then we're all called to share the good news of Jesus with all those around us, to look for opportunities to love people and to share the good news of Jesus. And that's always a process. You know, you gotta be spirit led. Uh, you might reach out to someone and it might take, you know, quite a time, a bit of time before that whole discussion about Jesus might open up, but that's all right. Um, we endeavor by the Spirit of God to be a just people, to be a people filled with integrity, a people that are all about trying to right the wrongs and to, uh, to live lives that are full of good things. We do this by the Spirit of God. We're not perfect but that's what we're growing into. It's who we are. It's who God made us to be. This is a different way of life than the world. The world's values are completely different. Just look around. I mean, you know, we see it all the time. John puts it this way in verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Yeah, the world's all about, man, just grab as much as you can of whatever you want. It's all about boasting this and that. I've accomplished this. I've gained this. I've made this. It's just all the flesh and highly competitive, narcissistic, undermining relationship rather than fostering relationships. John says, don't be like the world. Don't cave in. Embrace my Father's ways. Walk in His commandments. This is what makes us who we are. The world is passing away, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. First John 2, 18, children, it's the last hour. Just as you've heard that the anti-Messiah is coming, even now many anti-Messiahs have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. So what does John mean, the, the last hour, right? Because that's like 2,000 years ago approximately. How, how, how can that be the last hour? When you talk about the last days, right? 
This one-ups it. Forget the last days. John's saying we're in the last hour of the last day of the last days. What does that tell us about John? He, like the other apostles, he thought Jesus was coming in his lifetime. John thought his coming is right around the corner. He's using the language, the last hour. What does that mean? Did John mislead us? No. He was inspired to write what he wrote, but he himself didn't understand it. When he said last hour, he's thinking right around the corner, but he's wrong in his thinking, right in what he said, wrong in his own understanding of it. Let me give you an example. Sometimes the authors of Scripture don't fully understand what they're writing. Think of Hosea chapter 11 and verse 3 as he describes the history of Israel. He says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. He's prophesying. God's speaking through him. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Remember the story of Egypt? He tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, go and tell Pharaoh, Israel's my son, my firstborn son. Quit trying to kill him, or I'll kill your sons. Specifically, I'll kill your son, Pharaoh. So he calls Israel his son. And then Hosea, when he's kind of like encapsulating the history of Israel, he, he gives us this, this, this word of the Lord, right? When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So Hosea prophesying using this word that he's received, what do you think he's thinking about this word? He's thinking of when Israel came through the Red Sea out of Egypt. That's his frame of reference. You turn to Matthew chapter 2, story of Jesus' birth, Herod's trying to kill all the kids, an angel warns Joseph and Mary in a dream and says, get yourselves out of here. So they fled to Egypt, and they stayed there, and then Herod dies. And after Herod dies, they're then uh, redirected to come back into the land. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter 2. He, Joseph, remained there until the death of Herod. This was, oh, I'm sorry, speaking of Jesus, his parents have him down there. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Wait, wasn't that about your son back in Pharaoh's day? The people of Israel? Yeah, and now you're saying the fulfillment was not them coming out, but rather Jesus coming back out of Egypt with Joseph and Mary? How's that even possible? Well, it's possible because you can have this initial fulfillment and then the consummate fulfillment later on. Hosea wasn't even aware of that. He wrote things he wasn't even privy to in terms of the fuller understanding of what he wrote. Yeah, that would be fulfilled in a much greater sense with Jesus coming out of Egypt later on. So when John says, we know this is the last hour, John's saying things that he himself doesn't even understand. Yeah, John thought it was right around the corner, so he uses the word last hour. And God's saying, John, didn't my son tell you and the other apostles when you ask these questions beforehand, no one knows the day or the hour? Why are you trying to figure out the hour? 
John, you guys need to give it up. No one knows, not even the Son. But this is the last hour. In what sense? Well, when you look at the creation of the cosmos nearly 14 billion years ago, this last couple thousand years till the return of Jesus is nothing but an hour in the Father's way of understanding time. That's going to fit just like the Hosea prophecy works. So with that, I want to close and I want to uh, encourage you through what John has been sharing with us to stay plugged into your local communities, continue to walk in the commandments of God, be a good neighbor and look for opportunities to share the gospel with those around you. In doing so, we advance the kingdom of Yeshua on earth as it is in heaven. Shabbat Shalom.